This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to a Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots. I'm Kate Andrews and I'm joined by our editor, Fraser Nelson, and by Andrea Vance, a journalist and author of the book Blue Blood, the inside story of the National Party in Crisis. That national party being in New Zealand where Andrea is based and we really appreciate you making the time change work, Andrea, to speak to us because whilst the international story this week was supposed to be about the World Economic Forum meeting at Davos, instead it has been about Jacinda Ardern and her surprise announcement to stand down after five years, over five years, of serving as Prime Minister of New Zealand, and she'll be stepping down as head of the Labour Party there as well. So, Andrea, I'm hoping you can kick us off by telling us how this announcement has gone down in New Zealand, and give us a picture of Ardern's time in power, and really what you think ultimately led her decision to stand down. Okay, gosh, well, <laughs> quite quite big questions. It's been a huge week here. Not unprecedented because we previously had a very popular prime minister in Sir John Key who stepped down less than a year out from an election, surprising the whole the whole country and just, you know, a very unusual situation where you've got a popular prime minister who goes out on a high. Jacinda Ardern has borrowed from his playbook. She's made the political calculation that she cannot conceivably win the election this year. We've got an election in October. She actually announced the date at the same time as resigning. So she's made that political calculation. She's decided that someone else is best placed to try and get Labour over the line. She was, of course, an accidental prime minister when she was elected in 2017. So what happened way back then was that the national government of the time, the incumbent government, won the popular vote, but New Zealand has MMP, which is a proportional representation system. And so Jacinda Ardern managed to get over the line with coalition partners and form a government, knocking national out of contention. She then went through a series of turbulent disasters even before the pandemic. So we've had two terror attacks in her premiership the mosque attacks in Christchurch and then another terror attack in Auckland a couple of years later. We also had the White Island volcanic eruption recently documented on a Netflix drama, which is which was really tragic time. And then, of course, she then shepherded us through COVID with the at the time very popular zero COVID policy. So then in 2020, we had another election. We have three-year terms in New Zealand. We had another election and she was swept apart in a landslide, not seen in 25 years of proportional representation government in New Zealand. And she had a couple of years of popularity. People started getting scratchy over COVID, very grumpy. New Zealand was locked out from the rest of the world for a very, very long time. The vaccine rollout was very slow. A combination of these things and other things that we can talk about later basically ate away at her popularity. And just before Chris, in the last round of polling, her popularity went from the most popular prime minister we've had in New Zealand's living memory. And the last round of polling, she she was polling net negatives. So, you know, a pretty, a pretty catastrophic slide from which she judged she could not recover from. Hmm. Fraser, you write for The Telegraph this week. You pick up on some of those domestic problems that Ardern has 
been facing. And you say that, well, this was a prime minister who internationally became a bit of a superstar. Domestically, she had many problems indeed. And ultimately, when it comes time for re-election, it's those domestic opinions that count. Yes, that's why I think it's so interesting to have Andrew here, because when we talk about Jacinda Ardern in the West, we get, it's an Obama style, almost like there's two people, you know, there's the foreign person who the world adores, and her international reputation could not be higher. Listening to the political obituaries rolling in, she was described as a global progressive icon, a, a woman of incredible accomplishments. I mean, and I guess that was the temptation for her, because at home, she is not regarded as that at all, but she bows out now. She gets the world's adulation. And this represents a fascinating trend in politics where you can get national leaders who do have a stunning world reputation, but a pretty lousy domestic one. And also at the time of Donald Trump, etc., I think the world needed kind of international heroes, and she seemed to fit that bill. Now, what is interesting, of course, to, to so, so many things which are fascinating about this, but I think it's interesting how she was swept in as the SNP were in Scotland, and with a majority of votes and a proportional representation system that's not supposed to allow for majorities. So she gets a wave of popularity. But what fascinates me is how this turned so quickly, because at the time, in 2020, zero COVID was seen to be a huge success in Australia, in New Zealand, even in China. Articles were written about how these countries had succeeded, and sure, they were locked down, but so were we in Britain, and we still had huge COVID casualties, where New Zealand had managed to avoid the 35,000 deaths that were being envisaged by the modelling of Neil Ferguson's Imperial, Imperial College. It was only after that when the mood changed and that you end up with a very slow vaccine rollout and basically Kiwis locked up at a time where Europeans are jetting off on their summer holiday. And then you see the whole mood of politics change. And then we come down to what is interesting to me as a global trend of politics, how those who presided over lockdowns are having a very hard time winning re-election with their voters. You've got Scott Morrison in Australia, who was basically booted out after that. You've got Israel. Boris Johnson was consumed by scandal after the lockdowns, after all of the parties that he was banning the rest of us from having. So popular opinion changed from regarding lockdowns as a success to, I wouldn't say they're now regarded as a failure, but in New Zealand, you started to have these protests, these sometimes quite violent protests, which need to be disrupted by the police. And it wasn't so much for lockdowns, but the vaccine mandates, the idea that if you're um, a teacher or a prison officer, you should get the vaccine or you should basically lose your job. So there were hundreds of teachers fired in New Zealand as a result of this. And many more New Zealanders who regarded this as appalling authoritarianism and were willing to make that point in protesting. Now, it'll be interesting to hear what Andrea has to say about this, but I imagine had Jacinda Ardern rerun for Prime Minister, the campaign would have taken a very different tone. I mean, New Zealand's elections are normally quite kind of folksy. You, you're, you're there making contact with the people. But recently, the, the protests against her had raised security implications. It would have been difficult for her to move around. And there was this kind of post-lockdown hangover, or, or post, shall we say, I think in the phrase New Zealanders use, anti-mandate 
protesters. Mm -hmm. And that seemed to have tilted the balance. Now, of course, the main controversy is over there. It wasn't really lockdown or vaccine mandates. It was things like her plans to overhaul the water infrastructure, deeply controversial over there. And it was the other things which we don't quite appreciate in Britain, like the, the politics over how one should represent the Maori minority, whether you can have a system like in the three water proposal, it would have created various water boards where the Maori tribes would have had equal voting status. And in a country where they represent 17% of the population, this raises concerns about democratic representation. So we see here, you know, when you pick up the papers and try to find out in Britain about Jacinda Ardern, you see a very different character. I wouldn't say she was unpopular in New Zealand. I would say she's polarising in the same way that Obama was polarising. Obama had huge fans, absolutely diehard fans, and he still does. But he had the ability to recruit people who were opposed to him in equal measure. And we're beginning to see that in New Zealand. Mm. Andre, I'm interested in this idea about when the dial started to shift for Ardern, because... I think in in places like the US and the UK, it was very much a 2022 phenomenon that as other countries Mm. were now reopening properly and had been open for months, New Zealand, which was once seen to be on the front foot of its COVID response, now very much seemed like it was falling behind. And then, of course, you had these protests that got international attention over vaccine mandates, which didn't sit so comfortably with Ardern's uh, international image. But it may well be that for New Zealanders, this actually goes way back in that you could see uh, some of these attitudes start to shift long before last year. I think the timing you have spot on there. Other European nations started to open up much faster than New Zealand. Internally, domestically, we had a lot of freedom. We we had long, glorious summers where you guys had horrible right. winter lockdowns. We were very envious looking over. <laughs> yeah, we and people, people in New Zealand were very extraordinarily grateful to her for that and all credit to her for that. But the vaccine rollout was glacial and there were many, many mistakes made that meant that that we just didn't receive our injections quick enough. And one particular section of society, the, arguably the most vulnerable, the Maori population, their intentions and their suggestions for to target the rollout there were largely ignored. So that was very slow. A lot of vulnerable people missed out or were slow to get the vaccines. So the vaccine rollout was already problematic and the we call it the MIQ system here, the the managed isolation system, which meant that basically very few Kiwis could return. When they originally locked down in 2020, Ardern and her government made a call, said, if you're a Kiwi, you need to get back now because we're closing the borders. No one really fully anticipated it would go on as long as it did. And so many New Zealanders were locked out. And that was just a huge anathema to New Zealanders. New Zealanders are huge travellers. They're a bit like the Irish diaspora. They're everywhere. You you know, you go to a local pub, there'll be a Kiwi working behind a bar and it's a birthright. They call it the OE, the overseas experience. Most, at least affluent New Zealanders will do that in their 20s before they start their working life. So it divided families, it divided parents, it divided children, sisters, brothers, you know, that was hugely problematic. It went on for too long. It was a bad system. Mistakes were made. So people forgave that for a long time. But I think when Europe and other countries started to open up, and a lot of this is very simplistic because you guys were still seeing enormous death rates on levels that we we never saw in New Zealand. But people were scratchy. They wanted to travel. They wanted to get their lives back and reconnect with the world. And businesses were failing, especially tourism, which is you know, one of New Zealand's two main economic drivers. So all of this kind of compounded. And I think what really 
it's been a slow, well, not a slow burn. It's been a pretty fast burn given <laughs> the speed of the election cycle in New Zealand. But by the end of last year, when the government traditionally opens its books at the end of the year, and it became very apparent that New Zealand was a was going to enter a recession this year after you know reasonable economic growth, our economy survived the COVID crisis. It held up pretty well, but. The governor of the Reserve Bank, our central bank, issued a warning to New Zealanders, said you've got to stop spending. Interest rates were going through the roof and it became apparent that this year um, people who had taken on huge mortgages during the housing boom that we saw during COVID, and this is New Zealand's housing problems are a separate issue but connected issue, a lot of people suddenly saw a very troubled financial future. And that is the point where New Zealand's declining popularity finally fell off the cliff and she obviously went away for this. It's summer in New Zealand. We have a long summer break, a bit like you guys have in July and August. The schools are off. <laughs> Traditionally, everyone <laughs> takes two to three weeks off in New Zealand. <laughs> and politics doesn't generally tend to resume to the beginning of February. So over that summer break, we call it the barbecue season in New Zealand because often big political decisions are made then. Many uh, leaders' tenure has come to an end after <laughs> barbecue season here. So she took the summer holidays and obviously has made the calculation that she cannot as many politicians feel to recognise in their career, you cannot return to popularity. It's almost impossible. What I would say is, though, Fraser very astutely touched on some of the domestic issues that we've seen that's contributed to this popularity. But I would point out, and just to take us full circle, is that when Jacinda Ardern climbed to power in 2017, and as again, as Fraser pointed out, it was the narrative that the world needed post-Trump and post-Brexit, this young female progressive leader. And then obviously she was pregnant and had a baby in office. She came to power on promises of ending New Zealand's quite chronic deprivation and wealth inequity. And, you know, remember, this was the time of Piketty and we were all talking about economic inequality. And she made very strong promises about ending child poverty. That was an election fought with people living in cars, living in garages, children going to school with no shoes and no breakfast. She made child poverty her rallying call, that and climate change. She said that was the nuclear disarmament issue of her generation. And largely on both those things, she has failed. And her government's policies during COVID, much as they kept people safe, much as they kept people in jobs and kept businesses from failing, have widened that economic, that wealth gap to levels that have just unseen before in New Zealand and are hugely troubling. And that is basically where we are now. People, our dreams of Jacinda Ardern are broken, basically. The promises are broken. She hasn't been able to solve these problems. And that coupled with scratchiness and irritation over, over two, three years of COVID have combined to people losing faith in her. Fraser, you know, it's interesting to compare attitudes in different countries because whilst, you know, worldwide countries are dealing with higher interest rates, crippling inflation, mortgage problems, you know, supply chain issues, labor shortages, all kinds of economic pain. The attitude among, say, business leaders in the UK when they were polled this week through a PwC poll is very optimistic compared to other countries, whereas there was another report out just this week from a New Zealand think tank showing that, you know, roughly over 70% of business leaders see this year getting much worse for their revenues, and, and they're very downbeat about what 2023 holds. So it would seem that Ardern has perhaps 
not different issues from other parts of the world when it comes to the recovery from COVID. But whatever's happening in New Zealand, whatever way that's being handled, is not inspiring confidence. And, you know, she promised just last month that she was going to make the economy her focus in 2023. Now she's stepping down, so it certainly won't be her focus in government anyway. That's going to have an impact on her legacy, isn't it? Because it's it's not quite good enough to say you care about these issues. You have to show that you're you're doing something about them. And she is ultimately making the decision to step away. That's right. And I think at this point, we should bring in the person who now looks likely to be the victor of the general election in October, Christopher Luxon. He is a former chief of Air New Zealand. He's, you know, a complete opposite to her in that he's relatively, he's a boring sort of 55 year old bald guy. He was only in politics about a year before being made leader of the National Party, that's effectively the Conservative Party. And if you listen to the, his language and the arguments he's making, this is the, what we would recognise in Britain as the classic Conservative argument, that the National Party, we will be more economically competent, we will help with the cost of living, we're going to keep government spending in control because she's letting it out of control, we will concentrate on the basics and, and make ends meet. Listen, of course, so those are the arguments which ultimately are salient. I mean, you might have, and New Zealand has, a prime minister who is a global icon. And there's no doubt about it. There's an incredible achievement. You would feel, a part of you would feel proud that this tiny country can have a woman who stands so tall on the world stage by dint of her own eloquence and talent, etc., but ultimately, you want to put food in your family's table and try to overcome what will have been the devastating economic impact of lockdown. And New Zealand also relies a bit more heavily on immigration than we do. And during lockdown, of course, there weren't that many immigrants. So you've got the same economic problems as Britain has experienced. And in a way, it's almost potluck who was left and who was right during lockdowns, because the same problems happened. All around the world, lockdowns will have had the same effect. They will have deepened economic inequality. So if things were bad before lockdown, they would be a lot worse. In Britain, I think it's undone something like 10 years of inequality reduction in education. So there's a massive job of repair being done. So you're going to get what I call the COVID effect, where all the governments, no matter what political composition, are dealing with similar problems now and will be facing oppositions who will be saying, we're going to sort out the economy, we're going to sort out this this, this surging debt, etc. In, in Britain, I mean, it's, it's hard to think of Keir Starmer saying that he would make a better job of running the economy than the Conservatives, but that is what he's effectively doing right now. And now, the funny thing about Christopher Luxton is that I imagine that had she stayed in a general election campaign, it would not have been obvious that he would win by a landslide because he's still politically quite clumsy. And quite often you see this in Britain, the businessmen who turn to politics tend not to be natural politicians. They might claim to be good economic managers, competent this, competent that, but usually they get politically caught out and they tend not to be very good at that transformation. But I'm not sure who's going to succeed Jacinda Ardern now as leader of the Labour Party. But I suspect whoever it is will be more of an even match for the politically inexperienced Luxton. I haven't, don't know, if Andrea, if there's been any opinion polls in New Zealand about the outcome of this. But I imagine the net result is, is she, she leaving her party will leave her party considerably worse off. I mean, sure, she might have lost in this general election, but probably not by as much as the Labour Party are likely to lose by now. Andrea, if you could um, 
give us some insight into what a different political match for the National Party might mean. That would be fascinating. Of course, you've written a book on the opposition party. So in addition to that, just to wrap up as well, if, if you could give us some indication about where you think politics in New Zealand is, is going over the next few years, it looks like there could now be quite a major shift. Yeah, so so it's Friday night in New Zealand now, and what's going to happen? The Labour Party caucus will meet on Sunday to you know decide choose the next prime minister. But tomorrow morning, Saturday morning, which will be your Friday night, the nominations will be declared for the contenders for the job. Now there are a few names in the, in the ring, but the front runner is Chris Hipkins, who is Jacinda, who was Jacinda Ardern's COVID response minister. He's also the education minister and police minister. They hold a lot of portfolios in New Zealand, and he he's the front runner. But I, also, it seems like I understand from talking to my sources tonight that he will be the sole nomination. So it's pretty much guaranteed that Chris Hipkins, who's been in politics, who actually came to politics at the same time as Jacinda Ardern in two thousand and eight, a great friend of hers of course and in her inner circle it looks like he will be the next prime minister and christopher luxon's main rival for the top job on our october 14th election so just to catch you up on where we are now so you're quite correct in saying that christopher luxon looks like he will take the election the polls are still we've had one poll today which puts Chris Hipkins is the favourite for the next Labour leader, but we don't know, we actually don't know yet the implications of Jacinda Ardern's resignation. But my pick is that once Chris Hipkins is installed, he will get a post a post-election bump in the polls. And then after that, I think we'll have more of an idea. My pick would be that it's probably he's the underdog now, that he it's going to be a real fight to the death. Hipkins is a real scrapper. He's a political terrier. He's the best person to fight this election. Jacinda Ardern was, was probably their, their last and only hope. But if anyone's going to give it a good fight, it'll be Hipkins. The interesting thing about National is, as Fraser said, Christopher Luxon, he's not been in the job very long. He is a former CEO. He was brand manager for Unilever and then CEO of, of Air New Zealand. He is inexperienced and it shows <laughs> he's really clumsy he reacts often without thinking he's getting better to be fair he's becoming more polished but the general consensus is that in, in a campaign particularly against Jacinda Ardern he would have been a liability he would have made too many mistakes I think he will make continue to make a lot of mistakes Chris Hipkins is a much more polished performer he tends to be a little bit more rash and more tempestuous so it's going to be an, it'll be an interesting it's very much personality contest in these elections it'll be a two horse race between those two and it will come down solely to economic policies now what's interesting about chris hipkins is that i think most people assume that jacinda ardern is is you know pretty radical she was actually very cautious and quite centrist and her her and her, her finance minister's economic policies during COVID were pretty centrist and National probably would have followed the same playbook. Chris Hipkins is even more of a centrist. And so what's going to happen is National is going to be pushed to be really specific about what its economic direction is going to be because we, he, they have really have not spelled that out. There aren't actual any clear differences substantial differences on their tax policies and their debt policies so that's going to be the main focus of the election but look I w- I never bet on politics in New Zealand because it's as crazy as as politics anywhere else in the western world but if someone put a gun to my head I'd say National will probably probably win the election of course it's an MMP election it all depends who has the most friends in other parties but you know I think 
you could probably safely assume, assuming no bombshells, no natural disasters, which are always a given in New Zealand, that Jacinda Ardern has probably brought the curtain down on, on this two-term Labour government. Well, then it sounds like we could really be uh, looking at some change. How fascinating. Andre and Fraser, thanks for joining me. Thank you.